You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Emily Dreyfus is a journalist who covers the intersection of society and technology. Her writing has appeared in Wired, The Atlantic, and The New York Times with Joan Donovan, Ph.D., and Brian Friedberg. She is the author of Meme Wars, the untold story of the online battles upending democracy in America. Thank you for joining me, Emily. Thank you so much for having me, Rick. You know, this uh, book is of particular interest to me. Uh, this podcast is called Narrative Species because uh, after, somewhere about five years ago or so, I, after my 1500th interview, I started to think, well, you know, human beings are actually a narrative species. We define who we are by telling stories and we create who we are by thinking a story every second of our conscious lives Absolutely. And, even, and even our <laughs> unconscious lives and the meme wars are uh, the acceleration of using digital technology and the internet of narrative the weaponization of narrative and That's exactly right you know, now, narr- weaponized narrative may not be new. Moon Watcher, who was the pro-human we saw at the very beginning of 2001, before he conked somebody on the head with a rock, he may well have tried to get rid of that pro- other pro-human by saying, go in that cave over there. There's no bears there. I promise there's no bear in that cave. <laughs> <laughs> that said... Uh, you log, log and get down on ground level and give us this incredibly detailed and just like page-turning vision of what has happened with the what you call the meme wars, where fragments, story fragments, story narratives are turned into weapons with the big help of the our, of the internet. So, yes. um, I think this is a really interesting. Uh, you know, idea. So talk about what drew you to that world in the first place. Well, I love the way you introduced that concept, Rick, because I think about the exact same thing. You know, we are narrative people. And my husband and I talk about this sometimes where it's like, do you feel like the same person you were, you know, 30 years ago? And we've been, it's our 20 year anniversary next year. So we were like, do you think that you, the person I fell in love with were the same? Like, do you feel the same? And and we talk about how it kind of depends on the story you tell yourself about your life. Like, am I telling myself a new story? Then maybe I feel like a new person. But actually, like, in I, I always say to him, like, well, I'm I'm still telling myself the same story I was telling when I met you when I was 19, and so I feel like the same person, and I'm still on the same track. Um, so meme wars for me is kind of the confluence of a lot of my interests. So it's like philosophical concepts of like what is truth and all of that, which I studied in college and I'm obsessed with, and you know. Uh, and but then also the I've been a technology journalist for 15 years, and one of the main things when you're reporting about anything, any topic, but in in technology, it's kind of like this iterative discussion of okay, like now there's this new app and people are using it this way, or now there's this new vulnerability we discovered and people are using it this way, and it's a it's kind of 
it's really incremental. When you're a reporter, you're really telling a lot of incremental stories of something that happened now and we're going to explain it. And I've felt a, the whole time I've been a journalist, um, I really felt like there was some piece of the story missing because to tell a story, a unique individual re reported piece that is newsworthy, it has to be very succinct. It has to be really narrow and focused. And though that's important, it often miss misses like the context of everything that got that story to that point and also misses kind of like why it matters the, and, and, and how it affects people. So when I was a news editor at Wired for many years, I was I was constantly trying to come up with story um, formats for the website and the magazine where we could have a chance to say like, OK, so here's the thing we're seeing, like here's a hack. And this is what happened and here's why you need to know it. But this is coming up on a hundred years of this kind of um, context and history that led to this moment. And it's really hard to infuse that into journalism. So, and then I covered the 2016 election for Wired. I was the um, politics, I was like a pop-up politics editor. I had like the whole story of my life, Rick, is that I just learn, I fly by the seat of my pants, learn as I go. I was, I did not study journalism in college. I studied poetry and philosophy. And then when I turned, turned out that wasn't a job, I became a journalist. I, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I, I have a extremely useful Bachelor of Arts degree in creative writing from UC Irvine. <laughs> oh, but hey, UC Irvine's a great school for that. But but so, you know, um, then when I was being a journalist, I'm like, okay, this, I'm, I can't bring my like Robert Lowell thesis into this. Um, so I just had to learn as I went. And during the 2016, 2015 election, one of the things we had to kind of do immediately was say, okay, this is a political, this is a digital and internet election. Uh, and, and people had said that about Obama, but it was true, obviously, in 2015, in a way where it was like Wired magazine, though, is not, though it is not a political magazine, does need to involve itself in this story because it's using all of the affordances of this technolo technological system that we've been covering for 20 years. So I became the, a political editor. And, and again, I kind of felt like I was missing the forest for the trees you know it was like there was all this momentum around trump and there was all of this chaos and not excitement around hillary and and it and yet our stories were very much like this is what happened today this is who said this this is what the bots are doing on twitter and all of that was sort of missing the meat of it and all of which is to say that meme wars as a book is the first opportunity i've had to kind of tie all those threads together and say, yes, there were individual unique things that were happening. There was Gamergate, there was Donald Trump, you know, announcing his presidency. And that was a specific thing that happened in time, but it was in conversation with this whole history of society and the way it was built and the way our biases and our brains operate and the way narrative functions in the role of humanity. And now let's try to show you how all of those things play together. So such an opportunity for me to kind of step back and do the kind of storytelling I'd always wanted to do. And, and also it was a way for me to finally kind of make sense of some of the things that I had lived through, like Gamergate, like the 2016 meme war and the Me Too era as a 
journalist being kind of really in the soup of it and in the mix of it and actually take a step back and say, what was it all? What was the meaning of it all? And why was it happening? Um, and that's the thing, right, is that the point I, I think the main takeaway and point I want people to understand from the book is we wrote it while we because we were watching January 6th unfold. And again, this was like a momentary event. It was a happening. People were covering it like it was, you know, it was breaking news. And in a sense, it was breaking news because it was a violent spectacle. But it wasn't breaking news in the sense that like it came out of nowhere. It came from somewhere very specific. And jo Dr. Donovan and Brian and I, who at the time had been working together for a year, uh, researching media manipulation and meme wars, from a socio-technical perspective at Harvard, when we were watching it happen, everyone around us that we were seeing kind of the pundits, they were like, we don't understand how this could possibly be happening in America. This is, where is this coming from? How could this be possible? And, and we knew where it came from. It came from the stories that these meme warriors had been seeding into society for you know decades, but accelerating uh, one decade prior. And so we were like, we gotta, we gotta tell this story. It, it's a story well told and one of the things I find really interesting in my reading experience was that as I read it I mean I've spent a fair amount of time online myself and so um, a lot of the, the the themes like Gamergate and you know the Unite the Right and all those events were somewhat familiar to me but what you do an amazingly good job at is drawing a line, showing how one slipped into the other, you know, like evolved. You show the evolution and also you take us two down to the ground so we can experience that evolution in the, you know, the various uh, events, you know, through the, the lives of, of the various people like, you know, Spencer and, and and Gorka and all these names that we might have seen, you know, a couple of times, but you take us through that to, to tell the story. It's a big story and goes over. I think you do a good job of confining it, you know, to keep it so it's not not a two thousand page book. <laughs> Uh, it's really funny you say that, Rick, because there is, a, I don't know how much like insider publishing uh, stories you you or your audience would have a tolerance for, but the book was almost twice as long because uh, there's so much there and it is hard. It was hard to say, okay, which individual chaos agent are we going to focus on? Which individual moment, you know, in these forums where they were arguing and deciding on a hashtag and deciding to launch Unite the Right are we going to focus on? And there were so, so, so many opportunities. And my co-author, Brian Friedberg, he's a um, digital ethnographer. So he had been cataloging all of this data for so long that he just had reams of it. And for him, in his opinion, you know, he's like, all of this is essential. Every single part of this played a role. It is an ingredient in this stew and we cannot leave it out of the recipe, you know? Uh, so for me as a journalist, like my job was to say, okay, I got to carve the narrative out of this, out of these details. Uh, and, but our, our publishers had told us, okay, guys, aim for a 350 page draft. But we wrote this book as fast as humanly possible, in my opinion. Like we, I came up with the concept the night of January 6th. We pitched it like three weeks later and we had to turn our first draft in like the end of May. 
that's really a fast considering the vast amount of ground you cover. Exactly. So it, it was chaos, but we were we had a real um, leg up because Brian had already been, you know, gathering so much of the historical details and he and he as someone who had immersed himself like ethnographically into these online communities, he also just knew the norms. Um, and then Joan, Dr. Donovan, she has spent so many years putting together a framework of analysis to understand how all that works. And then I had been covering so many of these things as it was unfolding that I kind of had the media perspective and the and the narrative perspective to figure out what mattered. So it was we knew we could do it fast. But when they told us 350 words, I don't think 350 pages, they didn't realize the extent to which they were dealing with newbie authors because none, none of us had ever written a book before. And so, you know, it was COVID times and we weren't all together in person. We were writing from different parts of the country and on sharing on Google Docs. And we were so excited, Rick. We were like, we hit our, we hit our deadline. We hit our deadline and we hit our page count. Exactly. We were so proud of ourselves. We sent in a draft. And I think that my, our, one of our editors almost actually had like a cardiac episode <laughs> because he was like, guys, um, yeah, good stuff here, but this is twice as long. This is a this is a fifteen hundred page book or something, and it turns out I did not. We did not understand that a three hundred and fifty page book is not three hundred and fifty single spaced Google Docs. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> So draft two of the book was literally, actually, I felt a little bit like, um, you know, some, this is, this sounds so, uh, like, I think I'm so fancy, but maybe not Michelangelo carving something out of stone, but like maybe one of Michelangelo's students learning how to do that. Like I, we had this enormous block of text and we did then have to carve out a much more succinct story. Um, and I'm glad that it, it seems a little succinct as a, you as a reader it it was uh it was and one of the things i, I wanted to to talk about was you know you what early on you mentioned gamergate which is something that i was slightly interested in when it happened i mean it, i'm not a gamer myself um but you know i just found you know the play interesting so I'd like you to talk about, let's start there because I think that's a, a pretty good, you know, seed for where a lot of this, the techniques were developed. And so talk about how, what exactly what Gamergate was, because many people only have heard the name and, and not might not know some of the details. So talk about where it started, because it actually did start with one person, didn't it? Well, so it was about one person. Yeah, um, exactly. It was, it, yeah, so uh, it's an interesting story, right? And people now refer to it in shorthand as mm. though people know what it is. And you'll look at this in like even New York Times articles or Wired articles, people will say like, oh, well, Gamergate, you know, it was the blueprint for everything that happened next. And then they don't explain what it was. <laughs> so I do think that you're right. A lot of people don't know what it is. And even, and that makes sense because even I had just started at Wired when Gamergate was unfolding. And I will tell you from a newsroom perspective, we did not know what to do with what we were seeing because it was very confusing. 
So what Gamergate was, was there was a woman who uh, was a game developer and she's still a game developer. She developed a game that was like an indie artistic game. So instead of it being, you know, like a major studio franchise with shooting and whatever, I'm like trying to think of a single game that I can tell you the name of. Oh, Zelda. Like it wasn't like a Zelda situation. It wasn't a, um, you know, Grand Theft Auto. It was, she developed it. It was called an indie game and it was depressing. It was called Depression Quest. It was about like being depressed, being depressed. I think Depression Quest is the name. I might have gotten that. Yeah, I think you're right. I am. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I kind of love that idea, actually. Yeah, and and I mean, you know, that there was a whole movement of indie games at like right around that time. I remember a colleague of mine had done one that was even like even more depressing. It was about the death of a child, and as you played it, you had to like you as the avatar playing it you had to deal with your own child dying and it was a game in the sense that it was interactive and you pushed buttons but it wasn't a game for fun it was a game to like give you empathy for this situation and, and that was similar to what depression quest was like um no big deal you know like that existed other ones existed what happened was this game got a really good review from a bunch of different video game reviewers online. And there are all these different sites that focus on this because it is an enormous industry. I mean, people people forget or maybe don't realize how lucrative and large the gaming industry is, but it's big enough that while like other publications are going out of business because journalism is dying, like gaming journalism is was at that time, especially doing really well because there's so many gamers and they really want to read this stuff. Well, the well, quote... The quote is, is that it's bigger than Hollywood. It is, and it is, which is just so crazy. Um, and and so these gaming reviewers all published positive reviews of this game, and those reviews all came out on the same day. Now, to a to a certain uh, population of hardcore gamers who were young boys, not that all hardcore gamers are young boys, but this population was like young men the fact that this video game got a good review was ridiculous because they were like it's not fun it's and they they thought of it as this kind of social justice warrior um like women and you know forcing women and their agenda into the video gaming arena and then they thought it was even more suspect that all of these positive reviews came out on the same day they were like media manipulation you know this is media manipulation now as a journalist i can tell you what, what that is a very common practice because what happens is you get given something called an embargo. Exactly. A, yeah. You can't, you can't say anything about it till this date. Exactly. And publishers do that because they're trying to create spectacle and like excitement on a certain date. So they'll give people like a, a preview of a book or a preview of a video game. And then they'll say, you can publish your review on X, Y date. And that's what had happened. But to, to these gamers, it was like, these guys are in cahoots they're all talking to each other and they're they are publishing you know positive reviews about things that are actually bs because they have an agenda about changing the gaming industry and therefore like they are woke social justice warriors and we can't even trust their reviews so then they were like um they the phrase was this is about ethics in gaming journalism um that was what they said it was about and when they were what it was, was their then concerted takedown effort of the woman who had created the game 
and of the some of the reviewers who had who had done positive reviews of it and then uh, uh, kind of snowballing out anyone who came to her defense or their defense or who knew them and it was a bunch of lies spread about her and and it was all it was very sexual lies spread about um you know who whether like she was trading sexual favors for these reviews and it and it became then uh it, it just got bigger and bigger and bigger and and then it became basically like a drama um like a youtube drama fandom type thing where other people who weren't not involved in it at all were like well what's going on with that what are they doing to her is Ar she armies of fans clashing in the night exactly and then especially because they were saying that she you know that this was all based on sexual favors or whatever then you got involved this burgeoning kind of incel and misogynistic um side of the internet which had been growing in the couple of years before thank thanks to the manosphere um and people like uh, cernovich who had been uh you know building up this corner of youtube to cater to men's hatred of women or their their feeling that women were to blame for any kinds of um loss of power that they themselves felt like they were having so this hit a nerve there and then went viral within those communities and and then people like this is the part of the book that uh you know i don't think a lot of people knew about and it was so fun for me to learn as i was writing it uh they this also hit a nerve in the really growing and large but underseen um anti-black internet sphere where it was like a ton of racists who felt like this dovetailed with what they were upset about because they felt like it was a woke agenda and wokeness it was about multiculturalism and diversity whether we're talking about race or women so they were on board to fight this fight and then people like this guy that we we write about in the chapter jim goes by the name just jim that Jim guy, he's a persistent uh, character. He, he's like, you know, the old whack-a-mole. <laughs> pops he up is. everywhere. Yeah, and he has a couple different names. And no, you know, he, he at the throughout the course of the book, in the 10 years that the book existed, no one knew who he really was. Um, and so he was just a, an anonymous troll or, or a pseudonymous troll, I guess would be the accurate way to put it. Because he, he would have kind of a consistent name he'd go by. And in this era he was going by jim he later went by mr mediker um other names and and this person would go on these podcasts and on these uh youtube shows and he would have his own youtube show and his face would never be there like even if you watch these videos it's really interesting there'd be all these other hosts their faces are there you can see them talking to the camera and then there's jim he's the guest and his his face would be his screen would either be blank or it would have an image of him as Mr. Mediker, which was like a person wearing like an old fashioned kind of British wig, uh, like from, you know, the 1500s, I would say, 1300s, maybe when people wore those big wigs. Um, but anyways, he as a person, no one knows who he even is, but he managed to make Gamergate a viral uh, a viral and exciting movement for a whole bunch of different burgeoning subcultures online. And the way he did that was by translating it in these very, very interesting and fun and, and thoughtful videos where he would say, hey guys, like this is what's going on and this is why. 
and people would become would tune into those videos because they were very very interesting and and he had also been someone maybe they cared about before because he had said fun stuff before they knew he was interesting and and so he became like an influencer who then spread Gamergate to a much wider audience um and and we in the book detail those uh, those initial videos and exactly kind of the rhetoric that he was using, the way that he was appealing to people and the way in which he very masterfully um, demonstrated a use of irony and detachment to not take any credit or claim or responsibility for anything that was happening um, or even to necessarily fully endorse it. It was like with with remove, but but he was laughing and he was encouraging other people to laugh. And so what ended up happening was like Anita Sarkeesian, the woman who had made the game, she got death threats. She had to move. She, um, other, you know, all of these very, very serious things happened. People had to stop publishing their their work like journal. It, it became an entire large anti media, anti journalism movement that all of these folks who had maybe been brought in because it was about gaming, they stayed because it resonated with this idea that they'd already been thinking, but it hadn't been clearly stated before that the mainstream media could not be trusted and did not represent the reality or needs of white young men. And he did this by telling the story and editing the story and sending out these very succinct videos and, and you know, creating characters. And I think exactly. that, and this is also too, I think the first um, time that something goes and you have this great phrase, from the wires to the weeds. Yes, and, yes. And this started out as just, you know, YouTube stuff and messages and memes and, you know, little posters, little graphics people would send one another that, you know, are kind of funny and a little bit scary, maybe if you're on the wrong side of that fence. And it went from that to actual actions, death threats mailed yep. to the person. She had to move. I mean, this is like from the wired world to the real world. Exactly. And, and, and it was so, so powerful. It showed people that, hey, if we work together, like if we're, if we coordinate together in the comment section of Jim's videos, or if we go, if we watch his videos, and then we go over and chat about it in a forum that other people are not looking at generally, like 4chan's Politically Incorrect board or, or other places, um, then we actually have power to do a lot of real world damage. Like we can ruin a person's life. That, and, and and people were like so excited about it. And, and also like we could get on the news. There were people, you know, representing Gamergate who like went on to television shows and misrepresented who they were for this opportunity. And then they reached much bigger audiences. And uh, I think the, the narratively interesting thing about this too, this was my favorite part of the of this chapter to write was that it, it created a new uh, like victim identity because, you know, one of the things that- Interesting, yeah, because these guys were not perpetrators. They were victims of something. Exactly. So they felt that her game and the press, the positive press that it got around it was part and parcel of this larger thing they'd been feeling, which was that they as gamers were marginalized, you know? 
and looked down upon. And this is really, <laughs> to me, so interesting because it's kind of like they were like, you're treating me like nerds, like you're calling me a nerd. And I, you know, and it, it was reminiscent of like school, schoolyard bullying is how they felt that they were being perceived. And it's interesting for so many reasons, but not least is that at that era, at that time, 2014, 2015, that was not true anymore. Hadn't been true for years. Like nerds had already become the cool kids. People wanted to be Steve Jobs. So it wasn't an it wasn't a useful narrative anymore to say like, oh, the nerds, we're not cool. No one's giving us anything. So they needed a new version of that. And they went with gamer um, and they decided they, they felt like, hey, gamers are looked down upon. Gamers are blamed for everything. And, and honestly, looking into the research of this, it wasn't entirely wrong that that was a narrative out there. Um, people would would be belittling about like, oh, what are you like a loser who like plays video games in your mom's basement? You know, there was some of this idea that like a, a game gamers were losers. And then there were these other people who like could get the women and go out and have fun. And they really kind of honed in on that, that um, identity and turned gamer into an identity that had a grievance at its core. And that core was that like, because we are boys and men and we like games, no one takes us seriously and they will not let us be a real part of society. And, the, and we will not have a real access to our games, even getting positive reviews. Um, because we don't fit the the stereotype of what the of what the media wants, and also we're not even going to get the games we want. They're not going to make games for us anymore because they don't think we're worth it. Uh, and and you can see this is the last thing I'll say about this. It's so interesting in the book. I think uh, this is where Milo Yiannopoulos, who whose name you may recall, <laughs> yeah. I'm here in the San, near San Francisco. He had a very famous gig in Berkeley. Yes, he did. Yes. The battle for Berkeley, it came to be known in meme terms because he was like a very like campus culture warrior type. But all of that wouldn't have happened if it had not been for Gamergate, which is where he got his Internet power and where he got the power that he then used to help elect Donald Trump. And it was because he had just been hired by Steve Bannon, another name um, listeners may recognize to be a reporter, a tech reporter for then Breitbart News, which Bannon had inherited after Andrew Breitbart died. Um, and Andrew Breitbart and Bannon were very good friends, which is another thing I had learned in the research for this book. Um, and he had hired this kid, Milo Yiannopoulos. You know, he was like a kind of flamboyant British dude, whatever. One, And he started writing for Breitbart and his articles weren't doing well. You can tell, you can go and look in the um, records, how many views they had, how many comments, and it wasn't a ton. And one of his early ones was about how dumb gamers were and how dumb Gamergate was. And he was like, these people are, are crazy. Like they're, they're, they are losers whose brains have been destroyed by playing Grand Theft Auto and Yada, yada. Well, that article did not do well. It did not hit. Nobody cared. Um, and then Milo Yiannopoulos very, um, very kind of presciently had, he had friends and, and um, he called them his truffle pigs, which was <laughs> gross. But it was kind of people who he relied on to sniff out a good narrative that he could then turn into a viral story. And his truffle pigs observed that, hey, this Gamergate 
narrative, this whole gamer story uh, is really, really popular with a lot of groups that are not getting a lot of attention in mainstream media. And they really, really love it. Like if you could probably get them to read your stories, your stories would probably go viral. And so he did a mea culpa. He wrote like the next piece just a few months later was like, whoops, I was wrong. Gamers are not bad people who have brain worms. Actually, they are victimized. They are victims of the mainstream culture and neoliberalism. And they are victims of the media. And he became the most high profile journalist on the side of the Gamer Gators and really um, amplifying that narrative. And those articles hit. Like when I, I spent a long time going through his archives on Breitbart and the very first successful article he had was the one in which he was saying, actually Gamergate is good to, you know, um, paraphrase extremely. And from there it was like a winning story. So he just kept going with it and he kept going with it. So, which also shows that in a meme war, scenario, you really need these key individual players. You need someone like Jim, who's going to be a translator for the diehard audiences. And then you need someone like Milo, who it has a much bigger platform and can, and can kind of mainstream, or as we would say, trade up the chain, trade the story up the chain from like YouTube or 4chan where the truffle pigs were seeing it to Breitbart. Um, and then once it got to Breitbart and got so much attention and became so popular there, then it started getting picked up in other other um, like Fox News and more mainstream right wing places. And that that's like a fundamental part of the cycle. But it also made Milo a star. Like it put it, it made him the celebrity that he then became, which is why then a year later when Gamergate in 2015 was kind of still fresh, still sort of happening. Like some people were even still doing Gamergate stuff, but it had sort of played out. That was when Donald Trump announced he was going to be president. And Milo was like, this seems like these two things could be related. Like maybe I'll cover him in the same way. And then so did the same Gamergators were like, hey, let's throw our attention that we just used to destroy this woman's life and her friends. Let's see what would happen if we put that behind electing Donald Trump. And uh, the rest is, as they say, <laughs> unfortunate history. Yes. You know, what I think that, that you do a really good job of like picking out individuals and, and telling their stories. Uh, Dylan Roof um, oh. and Richard Fuent Fuentes. I mean, Nick, yeah, Nick, 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 Nick Those are such great characters. I mean, that's one of the things about this book is that you understand that because humans are story driven telling a story that's somewhat abstract about, you know, the the digital ask, the the di digital boost that could be given to stories uh, through the internet and chat groups, et cetera, et cetera. It, it is best told as human stories. Yeah. Yeah. And what's also interesting to me is that, you know, in, in a way, this book shows how stories need humans to tell them right? And, and humans love to tell stories. And the power of the meme wars comes from the fact that memes make stories memorable and accessible. I mean, it's just, it's only a, becomes a meme if it becomes 
easy to understand, viral, um, flexible, can mean some, you know, various other things. But meme is just another word for a story that is a successful story that will persist through culture. Um, but not only do humans love stories and do stories need humans to tell them, but what this book also shows is that stories don't give a fuck about humans and whether or not we have a good life, right? So we can take Milo Yiannopoulos as a really good example here, right? He used, he's a natural storyteller. He's a gifted storyteller. You watch any of his interviews and you know, you're like, this is a very talented man. Um, really has a gift for explaining things and making things clear and memorable. And he piggybacked on these memes to ride them to fame and to ride them to power. And then those memes succeeded in going way viral. Really, really, you know, if they were a virus in, the, in his system, like the, it worked, they overtook him and then he spread them to other people and they continued to go viral. But what they did not do is give him a good life. And we, uh, the final part of our <laughs> book, the postscript of our book is called Red Pills Ruin Lives. Um, and it's just to, to say, you know, re red pills are kind of like these me mimetic ideas that if you absorb them, they change your worldview forever. And in each chapter of the book, people were attempting to drop to drop red pills, as in like kind of drop a landmine for people that once they step on it, like their life will never be the same. And and Milo was one of the big proponents of the Gamergate me uh, red pill and the like anti-media red pill. And now, I mean, here's the, it, honestly, his story is tragic. It's truly tragic. And I, as a person who's like pathologically empathic with people, like I feel really sad for him in a true way because um, he, at the time that he got that fame and used Gamergate to become the person that he was and then was so influential with Donald Trump, he was a flagrantly gay British dandy uh, uh, by his own words, you know, he, he dressed so fancy, he looked great. Um, he was very, very openly homosexual and talked all the time in spaces where you might not expect about his like sexual proclivities and fetishes. And, and he was very amusing and funny about it. And, and in that way, transgressive and transgressive even within the communities that he was trying to court. And after all of this, after, after Donald Trump was elected, after his influence um, created and led to the Unite the Right rally, and then led to the mainstreaming of Nazism and anti-Semitism in a way that he did not, couldn't control, even if he was in favor of it. Um, after all of that, his career ended. He lost his book deal. He lost his his very lucrative tours where he was giving speaking gigs and paying getting paid tons of money. He lost so much that now, currently, he has, he's had a, a total crisis of identity and livelihood. And for a long time was just kind of doing nothing out, out of the public sphere, you know, didn't have any money coming in, didn't have much money coming in. And now he has rebranded in an attempt to like emerge back into reality, into, into the mainstream um, awareness as an anti-gay conversion therapy proponent he has disavowed his own sexuality, disavowed his own identity. He's now trying to like his whole new thing. 
he says, I don't know how real this is and whether he'll actually do it, but his new grift is that he claims he's going to create conversion therapy programs in Florida so that like other gay men like him can find freedom from being gay. And, and it's truly just like the person who he was seven years ago and the person he is now are not and anywhere close to the same. And that person that he was seven years ago would not would not think that the, his new person was doing well. He'd be sad for him. And it is it is like the red pill, his involvement in the memoirs ruined his life. I would say we can say that. We can say that clearly. You know, uh, one of the things about memes is that they bring together people by excluding others so that memes are kind of secret. Yes. I, every morning I go for a walk down at the beach where I live. Half of the my walk is through a trailer park. Uh, you know, and it's it's really hard to get a reservation there. You're looking out on the beach and all these RVs show up. I mean, they're very expensive. And these people, a lot of them fly flags. Yes. And flags are an ancient meme source and and they still are today and i would walk by and i'd see you know i saw the gadsden flag um i saw you know a lot of let's roll brandon flags Mm -hmm. and and i saw you know flags it finally culminated about a month and a half ago where somebody was flying like a, a let's roll brandon flag a blank Joe Biden flag, you know, out in public where any, like, three-year-old would say, what's that word, daddy? (laughs) Not one you're supposed to say. Oh, God. And one of the the flags I saw about a week and a half ago, I saw this flag, and it was green, and it had, like, these white stripes going, you know, through the middle both ways, and it had a little weird design in the center. I'm going, what the heck? is that is that like some country i don't know it is a country i don't know it's kekistan oh, oh my god wow the people at this trailer area are really rolling deep brick yeah so i like you to talk about how memes um create community by excluding community Yes. Okay. So, so let's just give a brief definition of memes, how we talk about them. Um, because so a meme as Richard Dawkins defined it, um, in his book, the selfish gene is just a unit of culture, an idea that, uh, travels through generations through people. So we tell it to each other. It continues to persist. Uh, America first is a meme that came, was born with, you know, uh, Woodrow Wilson, and it persists to this day. It traveled through generations and through people. Uh, and, and right now, people think of the word meme, and they think of an image on the internet with words over it. And that can be a meme, but a meme can also be a phrase. It can be a hashtag. It can be a slogan like America First. The Gadsden flag, and we write extensively about in the book. And if you would like to read any of the um, very extensive history of the Gadsden flag that did not make it into the second draft of the book, um, we might publish that separately. But it's, you know, we, we refer to that as one of the oldest American memes memes because when Benjamin Franklin decided to, you know, came up with it, came up with the rattlesnake and all of that, it was, it was to convey a really complicated idea to Britain, which was that like, we're warning you, treat us right, or we're going to bite you. 
And he had a lot of reasons why he chose the rattlesnake and all of that, but it was, it conveys a large idea. So we say memes have a bunch of different characteristics in order for an idea to become a meme, because like you can have, you could have an idea and that doesn't make it a meme. <laughs> in order for it to become a meme, it has to kind of shed authorship. Like people don't really associate it with who created it, even if you might know who created it. So like in the case of America First, like Woodrow Wilson was the first person to kind of use those words and, and popularize them. But you don't, when, when like Marjorie Taylor Greene is using that now, you're not like, she's talking about Woodrow Wilson. She, cause she isn't. Um, so it has to shed its authorship it has to be able to be remixed. So someone has to take the idea and then they can apply it in a different context. So like, you know, the Gadsden flag, don't tread on me. Um, first it was um, join or die. Then it was don't tread on me. These things like came together. And then it was adopted by like white supremacists and, but also libertarians who might not be white supremacists. And also I have a version of it here where I think, you can't see it right here, but it's, um, you know, the don't tread on me snake in the shape of a uterus. And people are saying don't tread on me because they don't want you to tread on their, their rights, their bodily autonomy. So it can mean all sorts of different things. It can be remixable. Um, and then it has to resonate. This is the most important idea. Uh, the most important characteristic of a meme is it has to hit a nerve somewhere. So like with Gamergate, these guys had this grievance already of feeling they weren't take, being taken seriously, of feeling like as white men, they weren't the priority. Um, and then here's this story that happened. And then they were able to say it's about ethics in gaming journalism. And that became the meme that hit their nerve and hit the nerve of other people. Um, and then the uh, and then if all of those things happen, if, if, if an idea has all those characteristics, then what it can do is convey an in-group and an out-group. So for the folks who were saying it's about ethics in gaming journalism, when they say that, they're when and when they read that, they're like, that's me. I'm part of that team. Or if you're a libertarian and you see the Gadsden flag, which you know, the Gadsden has really come in modern times to be a libertarian symbol. If you see it, you're like, okay, I'm that person's one of mine. And if you aren't libertarian or you are not part of the gamer side of gamergate and you see that same meme but you know what it is then then you know that that person is not on your team that that's your opposing team and that's a really important thing to understand in both cases but then there's also of course the third category which is that you see that like a flag like you saw and you're like, I, I have a feeling that that means something. And I have a feeling that it's conveying that this person believes something and is a member of some group. And I have no idea what it is. And, and I don't know if I'm on their team or not. Uh, and, and that I think is the majority of people's experience of seeing a meme is that you, they don't, if you're not in the meme wars, if you're not playing the meme wars, and if you're not read up on all this stuff, a lot of memes are just totally inscrutable to you. And you just you just walk right past them. You just scroll right past them. And that is also on purpose because meme warriors want only the people who, they only want to engage the people who are on their side or they want to provoke the people who are against them or they want it to be so inscrutable, but um, maybe interesting, even though you don't understand it, that you share it anyways. 
not knowing that you're sharing something that has this whole huge in-group and out-group. So a flag is the perfect example of a meme because by definition, a flag is saying, I am part of this team. This is the team I'm on. Uh, if you fly the American flag, like you're an American. If you're going into battle two sides, like in the olden, olden, olden times, you know, there are horses galloping toward each other and one person's holding one flag and one person's holding the other flag. It's to let you know, like, these are the two opposing teams who are battling. That's the function memes play is they, they do, um, they are identity markers. And they also too. And one of the things I think you do so well in this book is to trace that they're kind of like the shaggy dog story. And then because a meme that, for example, the Gamergate meme was just ripe to seed the incel meme and the yep. white nationalism memes, both of which kind of blow up later in the book. And I think that, you know, they are more than just weapons. They are also seeds for future weapons. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and you know, you could have you could do kind of Venn diagram situations of like, okay, people who like this meme also like that meme. It, it can be a dangerous game to play because some of them don't overlap in the Venn diagram. But, and, but as a journalist, it's important to understand how the memes interact and who believes in what, because let's say like the Kek, the Kekistan meme you saw that flag, frankly, like I'm going to give you a really broad explanation of it because it's re it's really complicated and there was a period of time when i was doing the research for the book where i could tell you in depth the real intense history of the kekistan flag but it's so complicated and i had to purge some information from my brain in order to make room for like not chaos <laughs> so i don't totally remember 100 percent about the kekistan flag but what i can tell you is that it was born on the politically incorrect board on 4chan and it is an in-joke on, on 4chan about a fake country that they made up that is the, uh, like, where the denizens of politically incorrect would live. Like, it's it's their imaginary space. It's their country. And, and they, these are, like, the major troll warriors. And in the book, we kind of try to refer to their conversations over and over again because there are archives of all of them as a sort of greek chorus for the rest of the book because even when people on that board were not the ones launching these attacks and planning the attacks which they often were but even when they were not they were commenting on them and thinking about them and talking about them. And so for many of the people on Politically Incorrect, Kekistan was the name of an imaginary country that they were the rulers of. And that meme magic and 4chan magic uh, enabled and conjured. And there's like, a, the part that I can't explain anymore is that there is a whole complex mythology that they created about it that is has borrows from video games and borrows from pop culture. And there's like a ruler and, a, and all of these... <laughs> So all of these things, but the point is that even without any of those details, as long as you know that that is a, a flag for an imaginary internet country that is exists in the minds only of extremely active trolls, 
then you know when you see it outside your neighborhood when someone is flying it you know on their very expensive rv like that tells you who they are to to a certain extent you know as i finished the book one of the things that that struck me was how powerful this was but also too this is a story that's still in motion and moving in ways we cannot predict and that's i think you know ultimately if you were to classify this as fiction i would put it right at the top of the horror stack (laughs) yes i mean so the opening the opening i rewrote the opening to the book um kind of at the last like right before it went to press there was like I did not like the way the the first four paragraphs were sounding. So I I sort of did a whole new like lead. And then I remember I had to read it. I didn't have a lot of opera. I wasn't going to have a lot of chance to fix it. So those that revision needed to be good, like real good. So I read it to my husband and he had been, of course, like aware that I was writing a book, (laughs) but he hadn't really I hadn't really been reading much to him and he hadn't read much. So this was sort of the first time I was reading it out loud and at the end of it, he was like, whoa, 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 did you just write a thriller? Like, is this book a thriller? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. And and I think it is in some cases, and you're absolutely right. I mean, to be honest, the memoirs are going at such an intense pace and, and then continuing on so much that uh, the publishing of this book was a little frustrating for us because we had to, you know, it's just a long process. You had to cut it off at some point. And it yeah. was still, and the, the story is still going on. And that's yeah, one I mean, of the interesting things, too, is as you yeah. read this book, you think, God, that, this stuff is still happening at a higher and more dangerous rate. Exactly. And, I mean, one one good thing is the results of the most recent midterm election does show that, again, and this is a thesis in our book, meme warfare does not necessarily translate into successful politics it did for Trump when he got elected. And that's why we spend so much time in the book on why and how the dynamics of that worked. But in terms of memes as a succinct idea that gets you know in people's brains and they can't stop thinking about it and they are you know motivate themselves to some sort of action or whatever from the wires to the weeds, that might be true, but it doesn't necessarily translate into policy. We don't have a lot of policies on the books in the US that you can point to as being decided by memes or meme warfare. And again, in this midterm election, there were, I think at the end of it, we had cataloged that there were over 250 people running for Congress and Senate under the mantle of America First, which is a meme war, a successful meme war that has been, you know, mainstreamed and given its power by Nick Fuentes, who we write about in chapter seven of the book, who's this young Gen Z white supremacist, and then by Donald Trump. And 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 these folks these folks thought it was such a powerful meme and thought that it was that the base of of um, in-group, that the America First in-group was so strong that if they catered to them and took up that mantle that they would win. And the midterms have shown that that was not the case. Most of them did not win. And and most of them didn't win to the shock and horror of the meme warriors who were sure they were gonna win. And gosh, two weeks ago, um, Charlie Kirk, who we barely write about in the book because even though he is a meme warrior and he is part of this 
whole ecosystem, he's also a little bit more mainstream. Uh, and we wanted to focus on the people who are lesser known, but he has this very, very popular right-wing podcast. And he had been really sure that the red wave was happening and that the America first candidates were going to take over. And when that didn't happen on his podcast last week, there was a moment of real like reflection that he gave, he engaged in of being like, were we in an echo chamber? What happened? <laughs> and, and the answer was, yeah, they were, they really were. And, and, and we're all in, in our own echo chambers, but in that sense, you know, their memes were extremely viral in their own echo chamber. And it was, a, it gave them a sense of what was happening that was incorrect. Because as you know, in, in at the most basic level to most of America, none of those memes make any sense. They either don't make sense or it's really helpful that the memes have succinctly explained who these people are because then people who disagree can succinctly be like, whoa, I don't like that. And that's what seemed to happen. The new book by Emily Dreyfus with Joan Donovan, PhD, and Brian Friedberg is Meme Wars, the untold story of the online battles upending democracy in America. Thank you for joining me, Emily. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.